This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Many people ended up with a surprise recently when they found that the processors in computers could leak a variety of sensitive data. These leaks were found by independent sources, including, in part, a postdoctoral fellow here at the University of Pennsylvania, Daniel Genkin. The impact, though, is still being felt. To discuss what we are looking at now and in the near future, we are joined on the phone by Andrea Matuishan, who is a professor of law and professor of computer science at Northeastern University, and also joining us, Mike Chapel, associate teaching professor in IT, analytics, and operations at the University of Notre Dame. Andrea, Mike, great to have you both with us today. Thank you both. Thanks, Dan. It's good to be with you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, Mike, I guess take us through this for the, for the people that really don't understand what actually occurred. What did occur? Well, Dan, as you mentioned, uh, uh, several computer security researchers announced earlier this month the discovery of two significant vulnerabilities in the way that CPUs work. So most people probably know that the CPU is at the heart of every computer and basically every electronic device. It's what carries out the instructions that we give it. It runs our software. And what these two vulnerabilities do is they they work at a pretty technical level, but the bottom line is that they exploit some weaknesses that have been discovered. They're buried deep inside those CPUs, and they allow one program to access the memory that might be used by another. And when you, when you think about that, it might sound a little esoteric at first, but it's actually a pretty significant threat because an attacker could exploit these vulner- vulnerabilities to steal sensitive information. And the, the bottom line is that every device with a processor is vulnerable and it needs to be fixed. Well, a- Andrea, do we know where this came from and, and how this is affecting uh, a variety of people uh, around the world? Uh, well, the vulnerabilities themselves were uh, part of the build of these chips. Okay. So when chip makers are building chips, they make a series of design choices. And in this case, the efficiency that created by the speculative execution, which is part of, of what's going on, meaning that um, they were trying to kind of anticipate various different choices that a user might make and to help the processes run more smoothly, they built it in this way that unfortunately it turns out gave rise to this vulnerability in the meltdown case. So uh, what this experience will create is an increased body of knowledge for secure building and to help uh, the creators of chips in the future think through the types of risks that design choices of one sort or the other might expose future users and information to. So, Mike, what were the types of information that that were most vulnerable at this point? Well, so basically the risk is that one program can access the information used by another program. And if somebody manages to get access to a computer, then then they can access the information that's in memory that belongs to other programs or other users of that same computer. So there's really two big impacts that I can see moving forward here. The the first one, the one that affects individuals the most, uh, comes in the form of their web browser. If you leave Spectre unpatched and you go visit a malicious website, and that website has some code on it that exploits the Spectre vulnerability, Mm -hmm. there's a pretty good chance that that code would be able to access other information in your browser's memory, things like usernames and passwords for websites and that sort of thing. So that's that's the biggest threat to individuals. Uh, the, The second threat, and one that's more serious in my mind, comes in the world of cloud computing, because yeah. 
in, in cloud computing, many different companies operate on the same shared hardware. And when you build a server in the cloud, chances are your server is running on the same physical computer that five or six or 10 or 20 other companies are running their, running their servers on. So if you exploit a vulnerability like Meltdown in an environment like that, you might be able to gain access to the memory used by those servers and essentially the information that, that belongs to other companies. So, Andrea, then from that perspective, how, how do how do uh, companies and people that are working in cloud computing uh, really address this problem moving forward? Well, the first step is a thorough assessment of the impact of their particular cloud um, operation, uh, the the impact for their particular operation. So, uh, you saw response immediately from the cloud providers who were. Uh, notified of this vulnerability, and there was a bit of controversy about the way that the vulnerability disclosure rolled out, and it leaked out a little um, earlier than it was originally intended by some of the, the parties at the heart of that coordination. But really, it's specific to the particular hardware being used by those cloud providers. And so step one is a thorough assessment of the particular operation, the particular hardware, and figuring out how badly you're impacted as a cloud provider. You mentioned uh, about the, the future of building out uh, uh, hardware in, and how this is, I guess, to a degree, would you assess it as kind of a wake-up call for the companies that are involved in this sector and, and understanding that you know this potential problem was, I guess, from what I understand, was here for quite some time? Yes. So uh, I think it is fair to characterize it as a wake-up call. And there are basically two kinds of, of vulnerabilities from a sort of business standpoint. There are the ones that companies know about and perhaps don't patch as quickly as possible because they may choose to prioritize other types of uh, optimization for efficiency or performance or, or otherwise. And they may not always put security to the top of that heap for making corrections. Um, and the other type of, of vulnerability is one that's unforeseeable, unknown, and really the state of the art of knowledge at the time couldn't have predicted it. So uh, what we have in this case, we uh, will let the class action litigation that's already been filed figure out how the response went from the standpoint of um, Intel and, and other chip manufacturers who are also now facing uh, class action suits. Um, but the, the bottom line is that there's this thing called, that I call the builder bias, which is the idea that sometimes as we build quickly to move fast and break things and push out code into the world, we don't always prioritize security. And what yeah. that means is that down the road, um, making sure that in the IoT context that products are even at all patchable, but in this context that there are um, good processes in place to ensure that when the inevitable serious vulnerability is found, there is a swift response that uh, anticipates uh, problems and has ongoing continued monitoring of the way that products are performing as implemented, and in particular looking for any 
unexpected interactions between your product as a builder and other companies' products that could impose risk to your users and then, as a consequence, impose business risk on you when your share price might take a hit or your reputation will take a hit because your products are implicated as part of a set of events that expose users to problems and risk. Mike, you agree? I do. And maybe if I could just touch on one thing that Andrea mentioned, that calling it a wake-up call to hardware manufacturers. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's also a reminder to enterprise IT teams that security patching is important. You know, we see every once in a while, a few times a year, major vulnerabilities come out, like, like Spectre and Meltdown, that make national news and business leaders start talking about security. But the reality is there are hundreds of patches and security updates that come out for all of the various components that exist inside an enterprise IT infrastructure every year. And many of those are equally important. They just might not be as widespread, and they might only impact users of a particular piece of software or a particular kind of hardware. And it's it's not exactly the most exciting work in IT to stay on top of all of those patches and make sure that your infrastructure remains updated, And uh, but, it's, but it's incredibly important. And business leaders should be working with their CIOs and their IT teams to make sure that they're dedicating the time and resources and prioritizing the application of patches, just like manufacturers need to be uh, keeping security in mind as they design hardware and software right. and watching and developing updates when, when vulnerabilities arise. Well, and from what I understand, uh, Mike, these vulnerabilities, and I kind of alluded to it a second ago, these have been around for a little while. This is not something that just popped up in the last six months or so. So I guess the question in part was, why weren't they discovered before? Yeah, well, computers, software, and hardware are incredibly complicated, and they consist of millions and millions of lines of code, and uh, there are are lots of vulnerabilities out there that we just haven't discovered yet. So these two particular vulnerabilities have existed in processors for the past 20 years, and they were only discovered last year. I think it's, it's interesting to kind of look through the timeline of this, and last summer, there were four different groups of researchers who essentially at the same time discovered these vulnerabilities in the in the way that processors work. And they actually told the companies that make this hardware last June that these these vulnerabilities existed. It, it, they followed a process known as ethical disclosure, mm-hmm. which says that if you're a security researcher and you discover a vulnerability, you, you do have a duty to notify the public, but you should also notify the manufacturer first and give them some time to correct the problem. So companies like Microsoft and Intel and others have had the last six months to uh, to try to solve this problem, and it is a little bit of a scramble at the last minute, and that's a little a little surprising. Andrew, you mentioned uh, IoT, the Internet of Things, and obviously, as we get deeper and deeper into more connectivity, there's a lot of uh, things that could be uh, really put in that realm. All kinds of different devices. Uh, what about things like connected medical devices? These concerns that we're seeing play out in this case certainly will transfer into those contexts. So here we have sophisticated companies that are trying to to fix products in a way that minimizes possible harm. Uh, But when we're starting to get into the realm of connected medical devices and connected other kinds of devices with IoT, you sometimes have companies that are less technologically sophisticated developing these products. And so they may not anticipate this kind of a uh, 
a big problem with one of their their products and not have the pathways in place for remedying and uh, responding with incident response to this kind of a situation. For example, uh, not every company at this point has a clearly defined point of reporting for Mm -hmm. third parties to contact them about security vulnerabilities that are found in the wild uh, that impact their products or particular security vulnerabilities, the exploits that are found in the wild or the vulnerabilities that are found in their their products to um, allow them to correct their products. And sometimes companies aren't responsive to these reports when they, they come in. Um, and the, the technology companies that we have in play in this instance uh, have been at the process of fixing their products and receiving reports from researchers for a long time. Right. But a new IoT company, they're not going to be as sophisticated necessarily about having the internal corporate governance structure and the corporate processes that are capable of getting those reports and putting in motion the wheels of, of correcting those products to make them safer for their users. Mike, anything you like to add? Yeah, I think what we'll see as a result of that is several waves of impact of these vulnerabilities. Right now, we're talking about computers mostly. We're talking about servers and operating systems and Microsoft and Apple and Intel and all these companies are rolling out updates to correct the problem on computers. But we have to remember that these processors are embedded in so many different things that we use, and even entire computer systems are embedded in things. If you think of like the the multifunction copier, printer, scanner that you have probably down the hall yeah. in your office, yeah. that has a computer inside. And whoever manufactures that computer, Xerox or, or Canon or whoever, is going to have to make sure that those updates are available as well. So we'll see waves of, of patches being released, and we're also going to see waves of attacks. As, you know, as soon as this vulnerability became public, it set off a race between attackers trying to figure out how to exploit it and, the, and companies to be able to update all of their equipment. So I think we'll, we'll see that race happen in a few different ways. We'll, go, we'll move from computers to devices that contain computers, and we'll just see different ways of effects and different variants of, of these vulnerabilities probably come to light over the next few years. Well, for the average consumer then, Mike, what, what is it that they should really know and be aware of moving forward with this? Because as I said, there's so many pieces to what, are, what we have on a daily basis that uh, involve these different types of processors. I mean, whether it be smartphones, I mean, we're seeing more connectivity with our cars these days. There's a variety of things that, that people probably that don't follow this on a day-to-day basis really should understand at this point. Yeah, I think for individuals, the, the most important thing they can do is the same advice that they've been hearing for years about computer security. It's making sure that they apply updates when they're available. When, you, when, when that little window pops up telling you that there's a security update, do you want to restart now or wait till later? Click restart now because later never comes and make sure that you're, you're applying those updates and that you're aware of kind of the inventory of devices in your, in your ecosystem. And you know, oh, my thermostat is you know, a smart thermostat and it has a processor inside and Maybe I need to go and make sure it's getting the right updates. Some devices get them automatically. Others, you have to go visit the manufacturer's website and discover that there's an update there. Um, so that's one piece of it, making sure things are updated. And then on your computer, you're just running antivirus software and keeping it up to date is, remains really important. Andrea? Well, another aspect of this consumer self-protection uh, strategy is also to ask good questions before you buy. And 
in general, consumers may not currently be asking questions about the security processes that a company engages when building its product or in maintaining its product. When you buy your new car, there usually won't be a disclosure sheet on the extent of, say, penetration testing of the operating system that runs your car. Uh, ask good questions and demand that information. And if one company seems more on top of security than another company, that should be a relevant variable in the decision making as to which car to buy. But there's one other strategy that consumers can use, which is to ask themselves whether they really need to, to have the extent of connectivity in certain parts of their life and whether it makes sense to have less connectivity as a security choice. So while having, for example, a connected thermostat is fun, potentially, yeah. and it may be convenient for certain types of um, individuals' lives, and they like the idea of a smart house changing to their needs over time. It's also true that every single device that you connect to your network and bring into your home creates a possible point of attack. And so maybe part of the answer is not to buy everything in as in the most connected model possible, but to make strategic choices about which devices you want to buy in a connected model and which devices maybe for security reasons you choose to get the less connected model and have a dumb, air quotes, device <laughs> yeah. in certain circumstances because you want to mitigate your exposure, and particularly if you bring sensitive information into your home network on a regular basis, that would be a prudent thought process to, to go through because the cheaper the device, the uh, less um, sophisticated the company is on security that's building your device, you know, see the discussion about asking good questions that we just had, uh, the less sophisticated the company is in security, the more risk you may be accepting as part of your choice of this product in your home. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about the issues surrounding Spectre, uh, Spectre and, mel and Meltdown. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, and we can bring it up on the show that way, at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111. Or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Joining me, Andrea Matuition of Northeastern University, Mike Chapel at the University of Notre Dame. Again, the way for you to join in, the number is 844 Wharton, 844-942-7866. Mike, I guess let's take it back a step for a moment because we've now been thrown with these uh, these two monikers in our vernacular for a little bit, Meltdown and Inspector. Are, are, is there any major difference between the two of them? 
Uh, there is. Uh, I would say to the average person, you can kind of treat them as the same thing. Right. Andrea mentioned at the start of the show that they're, they both exploit the same kind of problem in the way that CPUs perform something called speculative execution. Essentially, the, the CPU is always trying to guess what's going to happen next, and it tries to guess, and then it tries to move ahead of, of the user and do things that uh, it thinks are going to happen. Uh, the, the real difference comes in how we fix these things, because they do function differently from a technical perspective. Right. Meltdown can be fully fixed by updating operating systems. You can go and apply your Windows updates, apply the updates to your Mac or your smartphone or, or what have you, and the, the problem's resolved. Spectre is trickier, and really fixing Spectre requires making changes to the hardware. And we, we see hardware vendors working on this. Uh, it's possible to fix some hardware by you can, uh, applying a patch to the hardware itself, but other hardware to be fully corrected is going going to need to be replaced. And that's expensive and time-consuming. So the workaround that we have is trying to fix the applications that run on top of that hardware. But there are so many different applications, it's going to be really tricky to be able to correct them all. Hey. We see browsers probably being the most... Uh, the most likely way that people will exploit Spectre, and the right. major browsers have already been fixed. And, and I guess there there could be some issues in terms of correcting these vulnerabilities in terms of the performance issues as well? Yeah, that's true. Uh, so these the, the corrections to these vulnerabilities do reach deeply down into the hardware, and the impact they can have if they're not designed really well can be pretty severe. It affects the entire device. So we saw in the first wave of fixes, a few things happened. One was performance de degradations. The early patches, in some cases, reduced the performance of, of devices by 25% or more. And now we're seeing a second wave of patches come that perform the fix in a more efficient way. So that, that uh, impact is, is diminishing. But the um, the other thing that we see is that some of these uh, fixes are actually causing problems on the hardware themselves. Like in some cases, devices haven't been able to reboot after a patch was applied. So it's, it, yeah. you just have to pay attention. Maybe you don't want to be the very first person to apply a patch, and you want to watch and see what happens in other places. Or if you're running a large environment, you want to test it out first on a few systems before you deploy it across an entire enterprise. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Your comments and questions are welcome. Andrew, I guess in terms of the reboot, that's part of the issue that I'm reading about with with Intel as well, correct? Yes. So uh, there were a series of uh, various different patches that were rolled out sometimes a bit more quickly than originally had been expected. And so uh, the individual companies that are rolling out these patches in some cases have needed to roll them back and, and optimize them uh, further. Uh, and Intel has faced some criticism in the press for the timing of its response. And it appears that at least one member of Congress has asked for uh, some specifications uh, on the nature of the response and the timeline of the response. We're also starting to see waves of class action litigation, uh, not only against Intel, but also against various different uh, companies that use the chip. So uh, right. uh, that will be another interesting set of dynamics to watch because the class action suits not only bring in contract law arguments, but in some cases also securities law claims about um, material changes in share price and 
the way that the disclosure happened. There's also a class action against AMD, another chip manufacturer, in connection with public statements that were allegedly made and uh, were allegedly not quite accurate. So, so you ex- so you expect this so you you expect this to happen to continue on for quite some time because of the the litigation side of this. The litigation side of this will take years, most likely. Yes, I expect it to continue. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Mike. All the best. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you both. Andrew Matuishan of Northeastern University, Mike Chapel of the University of Notre Dame. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.